Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. My sermon this morning is from Acts chapter 4, and it's going to be centered around the phrase that there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. Um, but before we get there, I need to do a little bit of uh, context, I need to give a little bit of the context, and so we're going to do that in a minute, but I just want to say up front that my, my goal today is two things. Uh, one is to convince you that Jesus Christ really is the only hope that we have, that you have, that your neighbor has. And my, my second goal, my second purpose today, is to convince you that, and to, to motivate us to say that when this gospel of Jesus Christ gets into you, gets into your head, into your heart, it will motivate you. It will push you. You'll be like Peter in that you will not be able to help yourself uh, but to speak of Jesus Christ. And so let's get started. Um, let's set the stage. So the book of Acts uh, comes right after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, he, it says at the beginning of the book of Acts that he rose again and that he appeared to his apostles over the course of 40 days. Before he ascended into heaven, he promised his disciples that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit did in fact come. It gave the apostles power to speak in languages that they had never known before. Uh, and so they preached, and many people heard the gospel. That's uh, the day of Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2. And we see that Peter, in Acts chapter 2, scaredy cat Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times as, he went, as Jesus went to the cross, was given boldness by the power of God to preach uh, the message of Jesus Christ. He says in, in Acts chapter 2, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. So presumably, Peter preached this sermon in kind of a, uh, a common area. A, a general area. There were a lot of people around. He was in the city of Jerusalem, and there were people from all different countries who spoke all different languages, and they heard, because of, of God's power acting on the disciples, they heard the gospel preached, this message preached in their own languages. And it says that the people responded by being pierced to the heart. Now, if you're a preacher, there's no better response than that, right? That's exactly what Peter could have hoped for, right? That they would be pierced to the heart. Now, 
In chapter 3, however, uh, we see that Peter and John were going to the temple to pray and that they came across a man who was lame from birth. It says in verse 2, Acts chapter 3, verse 2, and a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. <clears throat> so, Peter and, and, and John were walking into the temple. This guy catches their eye. He's there every single day. And he catches their eye and he looks up at them and expects them to give him something. And instead, Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And he does. <clears throat> Not surprising that this uh, also causes a crowd to come around. And naturally, this is a crowd of of temple-going people, and so a crowd form, and Peter lets him have it. He preaches again. This is labeled in my Bible, uh, Peter's second sermon. <clears throat> and he says to them, why are you guys so shocked that this would happen, as if we did anything? God has glorified Jesus Christ through this miracle of healing this man who was lame, who couldn't walk from his mother's womb. Jesus, they go on to say, Jesus, whom you, you Jewish people, disowned and who Pilate, the Roman, the Roman uh, ruler, put to death on the cross. You've done this to him and God has glorified him despite what you've done. <clears throat> he goes on to say, and now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways." So he preaches again the same message that he had preached before, but this time he preaches at the doors of the temple. And so things weren't going to go the same way that they did before, right? Jesus, or uh, Peter, pre was preaching right at the temple, and so he attracts the attention of the Jewish leaders. It says that they were greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. And so they called the temple guard and they had them arrested. Peter and John were arrested. It's kind of like the difference maybe between uh, preaching at the county fair versus preaching at Indiana University, maybe, right? Um, the, the leaders, the authorities weren't just going to ignore it. They were going to do something about it. And so it brings us to our text today. And I'm going to read um, all the way from verse 1 through 12. <clears throat> As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day... 
their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. The gang's all there, right? When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief corner stone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So, it says that the rulers and elders and scribes got together to hear the case and everyone, once they got settled in, the court was there, there was a, uh, they were ready to hear uh, for and against, they ask a simple question. There's one question that Scripture records for us, and they ask, by what power or in what name have you done this? Who gave you the right to do this? It's kind of an odd question, but it's uh, interesting to note that they didn't question whether or not it had happened, Right? And and I think scripture makes it pretty clear, this guy was there every day, everyone going in and out of the temple would have seen him, this was not a mystery, you know, there was no question as to whether or not an incredible miracle had occurred. It had, and even the leaders who wanted to squelch the message didn't question it. They knew it had happened, but they wanted to to test these men and, and they wanted to ask them, who gave you the right to do this? Now, knowing that the Jewish leaders had handed Jesus over to be crucified, Peter, scaredy-cat Peter, who had not been able to even be associated with Jesus before, is able to boldly proclaim that it was Jesus of Nazareth who gave them the ability to perform the miracle. And I want us to start today by looking at his example. You know, many of us have tried... You know, we've prayed, God, please give me the courage to speak about you in my workplace with my, with my relatives, you know, to bring up in conversation Jesus. And we failed, right? What a, what a wonderful gift God has given to us in this example of Peter. He was a scaredy cat just like you, just like me, and yet God filled him with the Holy Spirit at this time, and he was able to say boldly to the leaders, he had all of everyone who could send him to the cross, send him to a cross, arrayed in front of him, right? He knew what they had just done to Jesus, and he was given by God the courage and the faith to speak. And brothers and sisters, this is, this is for us. I know many of us feel ashamed and weak because we just can't even seem to open our mouths, but trust God. He is delighted to give you power. So pray. I know you think back to your your past mistakes or failures at this, and it's easy to feel ashamed at it. 
and, to keep, and for that to keep you from opening your mouth. But don't let that keep you from opening your mouth, right? Open your mouth. Um, he, uh, it's interesting to see in this that he's actually very respectful to them, right? He says, he refers to them, he, he respects the office that they carry. And he says to them, uh, uh, rulers and elders of the people, right? He addresses them as his ruler, because that's what they were. And yet, in the very next phrase, you can see that he's not pulling any punches, right? Because he kind of he gets the dagger in there right away. And he says, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, right? If, you know, we're, we're, on, we're having this enormous trial because we've done something good. And then he gets right to the, to the heart of it. He tells them that it's because of Jesus um, that, that, uh, that he was able to do this miracle. And, and that's, I want to I emphasize something else to us as we think about proclaiming and speaking about Jesus in our work, in our homes, with our family, in the public square. Every single time you open your mouth, you are claiming ground for Jesus Christ. I don't care how little that is or how big that is. You may be in front of the Supreme Court of the United States, or you might just be having a conversation with your coworker by the water cooler, right? God hasn't given all of us the, oppor- the chance or the responsibility to talk in front of the Supreme Court, but all of us have brothers and sisters and family and coworkers, and every single time you open your mouth and speak the name of Jesus, you are taking ground for the kingdom of God. You know, one of the, the things, I've, I've thought a lot about how to do evangelism, because I'm not very good at it, right? And so I think <clears throat> I've come to the conviction that um, uh, absolutely you want to befriend your neighbors, you want to invite them over, but this idea that you want to kind of like hide or not make it obvious that you're a Christian is, I think, just a terrible, awful, no good lie. Um, you don't have to, you don't have to, you know, quote John 3.16 every time you see your neighbor, but you do, if you're a Christian, everything about your life is now owned by Jesus Christ. And so it should just, it, 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 we need to get good at it just kind of flowing out naturally so that our neighbors aren't surprised when we say, you know, that we're grateful to God for this or that in casual conversation. It just should flow out of us, and it should be no surprise to anybody. And I, I'm telling you, I, I really do like to think of it in, in, a, uh, in terms of like a battle or a war where a general, his aim is to try to take ground. Every single time you open your mouth, you are taking ground for the kingdom of God. You know, I think of, I was having a conversation with uh, Joseph Bailey this past week, and we were talking about kind of this idea, and he was talking about how the Muslims in New York City will just pray on the street corner. They'll pray to their God, to Allah. And what is happening when they do that? What is happening when a Muslim in, 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 in you know, supposedly a Christian nation, in this metro, metropolis, New York City, this city of cities in the world, what is going on when they put out their mat and they pray to Allah in, on the corner of the street in New York City? They are claiming ground for their God simply by opening their mouth and being there. They know that they're different. They know that 
they look weird to the New Yorkers hustling and bustling around and going to Wall Street or whatever it is that they're doing. They know they're weird. Do they care? No, they don't care. But they know that they are claiming ground for their God. And that is, that's is why I'm, I'm, saying, I'm telling you, as Christians, every time you open your mouth, you are claiming ground for, uh, for the kingdom of God. So, so let's, let's not be ashamed. Let's not be afraid. Um, you may simply make the people in front of you angry. You may not see fruit from it right away. But that ground is taken, right? You have made progress. We, uh, the kingdom of God has advanced that much more. And so don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Don't, th- don't think little of your work, of your effort, of your words. The, the people that are listening may think that you're crazy, but that's kind of the way it always goes, right? The first time someone hears an idea, it's just, it's totally foreign to them. It sounds weird and crazy, and so naturally that's going to happen, but maybe the second time it's not going to sound so weird, and the third time they're going to start to get it, and the fourth and the fifth, and you know, many of you have stories of having shared the gospel with people for many, many years, and it, it taking years to take effect, to, to grow down deep. So don't, don't, be, don't be ashamed, don't be, don't be afraid. Now, at, when we read the Bible, a lot of times we get the idea that we have it in our brains for some weird reason because we like to weasel our way out of it. We, we uh, explain away the text, and, we, and one of the ways that we do that is that we say, well, the things in the Bible are so different it's so different back then that it really, you can't just, you know, you can't just read the Bible and, and get an idea of what you or what we are supposed to do. You have to, um, you have to understand that the times are different, and so we've got to go about things in a little bit of a different way. And this, this um, temptation is very strong when we come up against this statement there is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. <clears throat> we live in a pluralistic and a relativistic time. Now, those words are kind of bandied around or tossed around a, a lot in some circles, but you may not know what those mean, what that means, so let's talk about that for a second. Pluralism, what is the idea of, uh, behind the word pluralism. It simply means that you have to live in a society where there are different sources of authority that have to kind of live together, right? We live in a society that isn't just a Christian nation, but there are people from all kinds of religions and from all kinds of nations. We've got, in this community, I'm sure we've got Muslims and Christians and Jews and, and Hindus and Buddhists. Uh, they all claim to be serving a different authority, and we have to figure out how to live together. That's part of living in a pluralistic society. So that's a difficult job, right? It's difficult to do. We also, however, live in a relativistic society. And the idea behind relativism is simply this. The idea, it's the idea that knowledge or truth or morality are not absolute. It's not that there's one authority, but, it, but instead... 
that uh, all of those things, knowledge and truth and morality, are simply dependent upon the circumstances, like your history or your culture or your religion. And so what's true, the idea there is that what's true for a Buddhist or a Muslim is not necessarily the, this, what's true for a Christian or a Jew. And, uh, and so when you put those two things together, when you put pluralism and relativism together, the 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 main gospel, if you will, that is proclaimed to us is the idea of just live and let live. Let everyone just kind of do their own thing, right? And if you ever try to proclaim one truth to somebody else, then you're doing it wrong, right? But this is not what Peter did. This is not (coughs) the message that Jesus came and died and rose again to give us. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. Jesus owns every bit of Bloomington, Indiana, every bit of Indiana, every bit of the United States of America, every bit of this entire planet belongs to Jesus Christ. He is the authority. That's what it means when it says that there is salvation in no one else. Now, um, if we think... That in our day, we, since we live in a pluralistic and relativistic time, that we have all these uh, religions and people from different places that we have to cater to, unlike the time in the Bible. If you ever tempted to think that, like that things were different at the Bible time, uh, let me just tell you, you are sorely mistaken. Okay? You're sorely mistaken. Who was, let's, let's start, just focus on chapter 4. Who was at the trial of Peter and John. Who was there? Did everyone there believe the same thing? Well, first, it's, it's Jews. Uh, it's Jews at this trial. It's limited to Jews because we're talking about uh, a trial that, because of something that happened at their temple, right? So, <clears throat> but even though it's just Jewish leaders who are, who are putting them under trial, even then, you have different camps, and two I'll just mention, um, you've got th- that come up in the New Testament. The first one is actually mentioned here in chapter 4. You've got the Sadducees, right? And if you remember what the Sadducees were like, they were the upper crust of society. They did not believe in an afterlife, um, but they were, they were Jewish leaders. And uh, they were the ones who were, you might say, you know, if, if Donald Trump appeared in Israel at this time and said that he needed to drain the swamp, right? He probably would have been referring to the Sadducees, right? They were the ones who were, you might say, in bed with the Romans to kind of keep this arrangement going so that the Romans would kind of leave the Israelites alone to do their own thing within the Roman Empire. And so uh, the Sadducees were very concerned that these guys were preaching resurrection because they denied the resurrection. They thought that that was wrong. The other group that is heard of a lot in the New Testament is the Pharisees. These guys were actually the ones popular with the common people. Um, Now, another interesting thing, difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the the Sadducees uh, limited their, their teaching to the scriptures, to the written text. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were kind of like the Roman Catholics where they not only have the written word, but they kind of add 
all, in the case of the, the Pharisees, they add all the oral tradition, right? So this is where, you, where Jesus condemns them because they added all the extra laws and all the extra commandments. That's exactly what they did. They added this oral tradition that, um, that, uh, that they said the people had to obey and it was, it was necessary to demonstrate <clears throat> uh, adherence to the oral law passed down in order to be holy, and so, um, so even in this group of uh, Jewish religious leaders, you've got uh, different ideas about uh, what's true and what's not. But then, if you, if you uh, look later in the book of Acts, Paul, you remember Paul uh, was led by God to go to the Gentiles and not simply to preach to the Jews. And so he uh, had very much the same message right? He said, for instance, in Acts 17, uh, he preaches in Athens, and he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So Paul doesn't say it in quite the same way, But the message is very clear. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And that name is Jesus Christ. And Paul was preaching to the Stoics. And to the other, uh, he was preaching to people who had inherited all of the ancient uh, Greek and Roman philosophy that has a long history. Uh, right? There's all kinds of beliefs and philosophies and religions baked in there. And so if you think that the time then is somehow different or, or less pluralistic than today, you're very, very wrong, right? <clears throat> and so what about today? What about today? Um, what, what are we facing today and how do we respond to it? Well, um, I'm just going to... Since we live in a pluralistic time, uh, you could, we could talk about a lot of different uh, religions and philosophies, but I'm going to focus on just a few. Uh, first of all, uh, we'll, I want to talk about the secularists or secularism. Uh, so what, is it, what does it mean? What is secular? What does it mean to be a secularist? Well, uh, in short, it's the idea that the most important things in life have nothing to do with religion. You know, you might say, they might say, well... Either they say that God doesn't exist, or that if God does exist, that he's really unimportant for the day-to-day life. You know, and we get this kind of teaching all the time on, um, on uh, TV or in the public school system, because we're told that religion is, you know, it might be a good thing, it might be helpful to you along your journey, but... In, in general, it's, it's kind of a sideshow, uh, but that most important things uh, uh, have to do with things other than religion. Now, even the secularist who denies God recognizes that there's evil in this world, right? And so they, even the most ardent uh, non uh, 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 ardent atheist recognizes that there's evil in the world and that something needs to happen about it. And so this is where you get 
religions or sort of quasi-religions that come up where you're fighting things like climate change or ignorance, you know, through education or, or maybe the thing that you need is uh, uh, health. You know, people need to learn good health. Or maybe the, the main problem that they focus on is racism or sexism or something like that. Um, but scripture, all of those things may be problems that a Christian would also want to deal with, but scripture says that the main problem, the central evil in this world is the sin that separates us from God. God has made us and placed us here on this earth to worship and obey him, and we've turned away from him, every last one of us. And, uh, and what we're seeing in our culture today is the fruit of this secularism, right? We, and we see it all around us. We see it all around us. We see, uh, uh, you know, transgender surgery or abortion on demand or uh, no-fault divorce, the destruction of the family. You know, even non-Christians can see the, the destruction that this secularism has taught and are beginning to... to uh, see that it's, it's vacuous, that it's empty, that it's a black hole of destruction, right? Um, and I want to mention there's a, so you've got the secularists, and, but then you also have um, what I might call the universalists or, or, or mainline sort of Christianity that has left, uh, left the, the orthodox teaching. So who, who would be included in this? There, might, there are a lot of people in Bloomington, in, in our culture today, who, um, who might be very spiritual, right? They might be very spiritual, they might believe in God, but they have this idea that kind of everyone's going to get to heaven, that you sort of, whatever path you take, whether it's Islam or Christianity or Buddhism, that you, we're all going to kind of get there, right? And, um, and the, the main problem with them you know, if I was standing in front of somebody uh, uh, talking to them about that, that belief, I would say that the main problem they have is what I like to call the problem of good. So you've heard of the problem of evil. It's this idea, you know, in philosophy where they ask the question, how can evil exist in a world where God, who is in control over everything, is good? How can that happen? Um, but uh, the... The, the universalist, the, the one that says that we're just all going to kind of eventually get to heaven, has the problem of good because he, has, he, he, he denies the very real distinction between good and evil, right? He, he, he denies that evil really is evil and that God hates it. And even though we can see that, we know that, not just us Christians, but I think even pagans, by the light of common grace, can see that evil really is bad, and that God really does hate it. And so I think that just as the secularists sort of end in this black hole of, of insane, um, uh, you know, like I said, no-fault divorce, abortion on demand, assisted suicide, where you just do whatever feels good for you right at the time, and, and the best, highest good that you can aim to is to be selfish. Uh, I think that universalists tend to go that way also. That's where they end up. Um, now, I, but I, I now want to mention another uh, group of people that I think is gaining popularity because I think a lot of people in our culture are recognizing that there is no hope in these 
doctrines, right? There is no hope in the sort of hedonism that our culture teaches today that you should do whatever feels good for you because what, what, when people do that, people get hurt, right? A lot of people get hurt very badly when everyone just gives themselves to whatever selfish thing their heart desires. And so even non-Christians are recognizing this and they're returning to the very stoic philosophies that Paul preached against in Athens, in the Areopagus. Uh, And so what is this stoicism and and how does it show itself today? Well, I'll I'll quote from the venerable Wikipedia. Um, The ancient Stoics, it says, are often misunderstood because the term they use pertains to different... Okay, so the idea is stoic has come to mean unemotional, right? If someone is stoic, it means that they're unemotional today. But when they use the term, when when the the philosophers of stoicism... What they were trying to teach was not to extinguish emotions. They didn't want people to extinguish their emotions. Rather, they sought to transform them, transform their emotions by a resolute self-discipline that enabled a person, enables a person to develop clear judgment and inner calm. Sounds pretty good, right? Clear judgment, inner calm. Logic, reflection, and concentration were the methods of such self-discipline. And so it seems as if today in our culture, people are waking up. It's like we're waking up after the party, and we have a terrible hangover, and we're thinking, maybe this isn't so good. Maybe we don't want to live like this. And so we're remembering that in past ages, people have thought, well, you know what? We should aim for the good. We should aim. There is something higher than this. We should aim to be virtuous. We should aim to be good. And so they come up with all kinds of ways to do that, to try to reach that goal. And of course, we like this idea. We like this idea very much because it's very flattering to us, right? We like to think that we can make our way to heaven, that we will be the hero that will get to heaven through conquering all the evil that we see around us. But from beginning to end, the scripture denies this doctrine as from the very pit of hell. Scripture from beginning to end asks these questions. How can a leopard change its spots? How can fresh water come from salty water? How can juicy apples come from a thorn bush? How can goodness come out of a heart that is completely chained by evil? Now, those who believe in this method, the Stoics, the ones who, who believe in this rigorous course of self-discipline, are going to object and they're going to say, you know, actually, the leopard does change his spots. People do get better. They do change. And, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the guy I've got in the back of my mind, of course, is this guy, Jordan Peterson. He's kind of the internet phenomenon right now, and he... Uh, he teaches this, this kind of concept, this idea. In fact, he's got a program called uh, Self-Authoring Program, right? You're supposed to figure out who you want to be and aim to be that person. You're supposed to make yourself a better person, starting by cleaning your room, right? You take baby steps. You clean your room, you'll, you'll clean the world eventually. And of course, if you're paying attention, you're looking around, you, we have to acknowledge that yes, People do change. 
They're all, when somebody realizes that actually drunken debauchery isn't going to be good for you, but actually self-discipline and hard work is going to, you know, get you somewhere. These are, these are kind of common grace kinds of things, right? And, and, uh, and so, yeah, it's going to make sense. And people will become prosperous and healthier by not being stupid, right? This is common grace thing. But Again, the Bible repeatedly tells us that the main problem we have is that we are separated from God because of our sin. And once again, you do not, in your sins, have the ability to make yourself good. You cannot erase the gulf between your sinfulness and the holiness of a righteous and perfect God. It is only Jesus Christ who can do that. It is God alone who can make a dead man alive again. A dead man doesn't have a self-help program, right? He doesn't have a self-help program. God must make him alive again. So, what does it mean? What does salvation through Jesus Christ mean? It means that God must reach down and rescue us. We were dead in our sins, and God has made us alive together through Jesus Christ. The entire system of the of the of the uh, of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, uh, you know, people got it wrong. The Pharisees and the Sadducees they got it wrong. They didn't understand what the sacrifices repeatedly were for. But the the story of Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham takes his son Isaac to be sacrificed to the, to the top of the mountain, and instead, God provides an animal to be sacrificed instead. This teaches us what that system of sacrifice was supposed to be teaching the people of Israel that whole time. And the, the purpose, the goal, the, the teaching that they were supposed to learn was that God would provide a way of salvation. That was what they were supposed to learn from beginning to end. Now, we often get very confused about this because we think, okay, is salvation, do I, am I saved when, um, when I assent to it in my head? Am I saved when I start to, to demonstrate that uh, I, I, I do good works? Um, am I saved when I finally stop uh, looking at pornography? Or am I saved when I finally stop uh, drinking? Or, or, or when I finally give up smoking or, or, or lying or cheating or whatever it is? That, uh, that, that we're called to do. Jesus said very simply in John chapter 3 that we must be born again. We must be born again. And what happens when a baby is born? When a baby is born, you don't just get a head, right, that thinks. You don't just get a heart that feels. You don't get hands and feet that do things. You get a whole person. You get a new person. And so when, when God rescues us, when he, when he transforms us from death to life, we are a new person. And, and that what that means is that when we are saved, what flows out of that is all of those things. You can't limit it to just, just the mind or just the heart or just the actions. But all of those things are a consequence. They, they flow, they're a result of God reaching down and rescuing us. Everything about our life is different as a result of God's work. So I want to leave you with two things today. First, as you, can, as you think about your week and as you think about going back to work or talking with family members, consider the boldness of Peter, this man who was terrified and unable to open his mouth, who denied Jesus three times. 
was now able to speak because of the, the power of the Holy Spirit working in him. Pray for that and trust that God will give it to you because he is delighted to do so. And finally, brothers and sisters, some of you have not closed with Jesus. Some of you are still trying to make yourself good enough before you profess faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you are still trying this, this, this program of self-help and, and self-fulfillment. Self, uh, Don't waste any more time. Forget that. Uh, Jesus, it says in the hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. If you'd like to talk to someone after the service to confess sin, you can talk to a pastor or an elder. But please, please don't wait to make yourself better because it is a hopeless, uh, hopeless job. It is God alone who will make you better through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.